All right. Welcome to Sense Space today, part two of our ongoing dialogue, wrestling with Christianity. Today, I have my two friends, philosophers, esteemed gentlemen, Joseph Pickens and Daniel Garner. And something I did not include in the first dialogue is that Daniel is, in fact, uh, extremely good at wrestling in real life. And this is a metaphor we did not explore. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it occurred to me today that there is something about wrestling that's deeply uh, meaningful and pertinent to this conversation with Christianity, because we want to get up and close. Uh, we're not trying to understand it, to wrestle with it, to make sense of it from a distance, like somebody at a postmodern art gallery, but rather we're getting stuck in and uh, really feeling the full force of it and appreciating the beauty and appreciating the shadows. And uh, with, no, with no further ado, that is my opening for the conversation. I really feel we have a wide open field to explore today. Uh, the last conversation with Ken, who's unfortunately not joining us today, but he's here in presence, uh, was a really rich one, and we've already opened the space. So excited to see what threads we draw on today. And uh, yeah, I invite this to be a theological conversation, an experiential conversation, um, an artistic conversation, and everything in between. I'll just make a quick comment first. You've taken me back to my wrestling days. So thank you for that, Jacob. Um, as a quick comment, it's very interesting. Um, to understand something is to keep it alive. Whereas today we tend to associate understanding something as being finished with it. Like once you understand it, you're done, you can put it away and put it on your shelf and move on. But following like a Hegel, who you know I like, um, under to understand something is to keep it alive. Like in a relationship, when people feel understood, they want to stay in the relationship. And if they don't feel understood, they want to leave the relationship, right? So I think one of the things, the first things I'll say when it comes to understanding Christianity or understanding people or anything that's, you know, it's about keeping it alive, which I think is a, unfortunately a shift that you kind of get from school. Like you're like the point of studying biology is to get the A and B done with it, right? Oh, you understand biology so you can move on. Whereas one of the paradigms I think we need to move back into is to, to, to consider understanding as keeping alive, which one is exciting. Then there's a field to entertain and to work with. And that right there has, um, it's a much more participatory knowledge. It's a much more constant knowledge and working with as opposed to working until it's finished and then pushing it aside. So I was thinking that as you were speaking. Yeah, Daniel, I really appreciated the in our last conversation, that emphasis on um, when we were talking about our identity as Christians or not, that that it's not sort of a one and done, I believe situation that makes you a Christian. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a stepping into the beginning of this wrestling process um, that is sort of the marker of um, one's identity as a Christian is I've, I've committed to wrestling with this. Um, and so I really appreciated that and, um, and, and, and kind of find a, find a place to belong in that amongst Christians, because I do wrestle, um, 
and I don't have a definitive answer on a whole bunch of different questions, um, but I wrestle with those questions. Um, and and as you're talking just now, I, I I was appreciating like like the musicality of all of this, which is it's uh, this. It, it, we left off. We left off last time with you talking about the dance. That the dance being deeper than the story, which I really, really, it was, it was really profound to me. And I and and maybe we can get into that a little bit more. But 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 this idea that um, that understanding the way you put it um, that is it's a process. It's not. It's not a it's not a, um, like, like you said, it's not a finished deal. Um, just like music is a process. You don't, there's no, there's no sense of having sort of, um, I don't know, grasped the music once and for all. It's a, it's an ongoing process that you're participating with, like in a, in a dance, I think of dancing and, 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 and it, this really comes alive. This metaphor really comes alive when you understand cognition as embodied, like deeply embodied. And as I'm wrestling with this, it, it feels like I'm dancing to music. Um, and, and when I'm most, when I'm most like alive in my thinking, it's when I'm moving, it's, it's when I'm out walking and I'm, and I'm listening to music or, or something like that. Like, instrumental music where I'm walking. It's like, I, I get my whole body engaged and I'm, I'm moving to the rhythm of, of, of reality or something, something like that. And um, so I just really appreciated that this, this emphasis that you, you made last time on um, uh, yeah, this, this, belief as not even belief, but, but one's identity as a Christian being, um, a process it's, it's a dance it's a wrestling. No, I appreciate that Joe. And as a, just a comment, and then I'll give it to Jacob. It's almost as if like, if you had a dancer and they trained their whole life to go on the floor and do a great dance. And then everyone went, Oh man, you are a dancer. And they said, well, I'm done. And they never dance again. <laughs> that would be kind of silly but that's basically what we've kind of done with like religion and belief and all these different things we like do what we need to do to get identified as a christian or seen as believing in god or an atheist or whatever um and then we're done once we get that identification but if a dancer did that it would be it would almost be like obscene or a jazz musician you brought up music like once you know if they were literally performing so they could reach the place where they get identified you know, oh, you're a dancer and then go, great, I'm done. I never have to dance again. That would be obscene and that would be strange and you'd have a very impoverished life. And it does seem as if you have a world of impoverished life, right? That's the meaning crisis. That's the nihilism. That's all those different things. So something that came up to me as you were speaking, and then I'll give it to Jacob, is the idea that today we do things to be identified as opposed to do things to do them. And the funny thing is, it's like C.S. Lewis once said, if you put first things first, you get second things also. But if you put second things first, you lose both. When you do things to be identified, you don't even get an identity. 
<laughs> you don't even like get an identity because ultimately when we talk about identity, we're talking about something like belonging, like fittedness, right? Like who cares if you're identified, if it doesn't bring with it some sort of fittedness or some, some sort of story, some sort of part of something. In fact, there's a lot of people that hate the idea that the government can identify you, right? Because they can track you. So there's a negative side of identification. But the point is that when we're doing things to get an identity, like if you're dancing to be called a dancer, well, then you just end up the dancer doesn't mean anything to you and you stop dancing. But if the identity is in the act, in the act of the dancing, and that's the purpose of it, well, then your identity as a dancer is actually a signification of a belonging, of a fittedness in that dancing. And so now you have the right understanding of what identity is. You've got a lot of people today who have been looking for kind of identity in a state as opposed to in a process or a dance. And so you don't get both. Like if we don't identify with the process, we don't even get an identity because the identity doesn't have belonging. So I think, it, I think it's really important to, to see it that way. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate this beautiful sort of introductory threads. And um, yeah, that sense that I, I got when I heard Joseph talk about identifying as a Christian or not identifying as a Christian and that potentially you could be, you could be in either of those camps and not be in the process of wrestling. You could be a, a really wrestling um, atheist or, or non-Christian phil philosophical type, or you could be a non-wrestling Christian type and you could just be resting on your laurels as it were. And and staying in place. And there's something about a moving horizon that I'm hearing in this, that there's something about the relationship to the mystery, which is the, the mystic aspect of religion, the thing uh, behind the veil, or maybe not because the veil was torn in two. But in any case, the mystery is kind of part of that. Um, substance that you can kind of move toward it and in moving towards it you're somehow being known being disclosed but it's not sort of reaching an arrival point it's sort of like a horizon you could move closer and closer towards and as you drew closer you'd never quite you you wouldn't reach the fullness of it so the inquiry continues to um unfold and that for me feels like a a personal experiential sort of process. And I wonder then if ident identity coming into that is a kind of risk factor for ossification. And that insofar as I kind of like, once I'm taking that moving experience and then I'm pulling it out into the solidity of of knowing I am a Christian or indeed I am a Buddhist, right? We could use a different example. The actual underlying state that is pointed to by the structure and doctrine and practices of Buddhism and Christianity is not the thing that is, is happening when you say I am a Buddhist or I am a Christian necessarily. It's very interesting in the Bible that you have certain stories, like, for example, Lot's wife, 
Sees there unless you look and then she turns to sand. You're walking on water unless you look down and then you sink. And there's a number of kind of myths and different things that have this kind of notion that there are circumstances where you have the thing until you look for it. Or like when you let it exist in the realm of the invisible or the unnamed, then it's there. But the moment you try to identify it, then it's gone. And it's very interesting because there's something about identity, um, a term Timothy Keller uses that I really like. He uses the term self-forgetful. And he says that's the middle space between selfless and selfish. The problem with selfless is you can spend all your time being derogatory, talking about, oh, I'm nothing, oh, I'm not that good, but you're actually kind of focused on yourself because you're always talking about how you're nothing. But then of course there's selfish, that's bad because you're always saying I'm the best or whatever. When really what he talks about is the name of the game of not, and it's kind of a Prince Joseph line. It's like, um, it's not about thinking of yourself as less, but thinking of yourself less, right? So like you just, the concept of you is just not something you think about. And he equates it to like, C.S. Lewis talks about um, your big toe or your thumb. Like your big thumb is just something you use, right? You just use it. You don't focus on it. If you're focusing on it, it would be weird. But then if you like cut it off to prove you didn't need it, that would be weird too, right? And so you just kind of use it. So you're supposed to have a kind of thumb forgetfulness. So likewise, what seems to be optimal for identity is a kind of self-forgetfulness where therefore you actually require something like a mystery to forget yourself in. This is why they're very related. Like, if you don't have a mystery, what would you forget yourself in, right? Like, why do you forget your thumb? Because you're using it, right? So likewise, how would you forget yourself or identity unless you were using it to approach a certain horizon, right? You see what I'm saying? Therefore, you desperately require in your worldview some sort of mystery so that you can engage in a state of self-forgetfulness. And what's very interesting about self-forgetfulness is it's basically a constant state of flow, whereas flow tends to be reserved for like the writing experience. So when you're writing, you know how they talk about flow in sports where you, you forget yourself. And there's something very, very important about flow, right? And it seems to be a secret. It seems to have some secrecy to it. Well, the problem though with flow is it seems to be very special case, right? Like when you're on the athletic field, when you're writing and you forget yourself, right? So how could you expand the state of flow to more so describe your constant regular day of life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because flow is kind of a very concentrated self-forgetfulness. And what Timothy Keller is almost describing is expanding that same self-forgetfulness to define your entire life, right? Well, that's really hard. That's like a really challenging thing. And it does seem to require something like a concept of mystery that you can lose yourself toward a horizon that you are toward. And as long as you don't turn around and look at yourself, like Lot's wife or, you know, looking down Peter on the water, you don't lose that self-forgetfulness. But you have to keep your eyes on the mystery. But that means your worldview requires a mystery, ergo a process, ergo something to be toward, which that's what's lacking in a lot of people's worldviews today, right? I'm, I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying like that notion of mystery and we always have to remember the word mystery back in the Latin doesn't mean like a crime genre. One of the problems is it's hard to use the word, word mystery now without it having a kind of crime drama or unknown. In the Latin, it's more like an effusement of phenomenon. Like all phenomenon have a like an effuse, like effuse means when stuff is glowing with light kind of thing. So in the Latin, the word mystery is like everything gains a certain kind of effusement 
that can deepen or be brought out relative to our orientation to it, right? Well, in order to have a self-forgetful life, ergo a state where flow is expanded into the regular as opposed to the special case, it would seem as if mystery is necessary. Like something like mystery, something like a sense that the world is effused is necessary. Otherwise, the only way to get this state of self-forgetfulness that seems optimal, you know, Vivekananda talks about it, you know, it seems optimal, flow seems optimal, but it seems difficult to extend outside of, the, of these special cases. Well, mystery would be a way to go about doing that. Um, and then learning how to live without in the particular practices. So I think, I think it's very connected in exactly what you were saying. Yeah, I love that connection. It's been, yeah, <laughs> it's never been put so clearly for me that those two things are kind of adjacent, but that feels like the case, although it is a, it seems to be a slightly different quality of flow, perhaps to the kind of basketball flow or what have you. Um, but it there's is definitely not, not to interrupt. There's definitely a different in intensity, but they seem to be similar in kind. Like they're in the same sort of family and there's a shift in intensity. Uh, and then the question is why, how do you condition yourself for those intensities and, and things like that? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So and this sense of, Oh, just ahead, briefly Jim. that, that sense of like the effusement, um, the illumination that that feels to me almost like a kind of there's almost like a gravitational spectrum between a reality that is effused with mystery and a reality which is devoid of mystery and my day-to-day -day can be a kind of movement in and out of that and i don't think it's like unfair daniel for you to say most people are not um living in relationship to mystery because my experience as someone who's you know been exploring this for a long time and is quite sensitized to the world is that we're in an environment which is almost actively there's like an active almost like a conspiracy to abscond the mystery from the world like there's an active denial of something there's an active hiddenness of there being anything more than what is and so this becomes the great challenge and i think it's only through dire necessity on my part that has kind of created a forcing function or attention or something that has made it so important for me to be able to get through that very what can be almost like a tiny pinprick of a doorway that takes you from the wall that is devoid of mystery and and through that you can kind of remember there's a way of reconnecting with this um with this mystery and then that can kind of begin to effuse and illuminate and uh shift the way that you appreciate your day-to-day -day life um and the the last thing i want to add to this and this is a this is a huge one so i i certainly won't complete it with my words but um i think that love is somehow essential to this and that in my early years of exploring mystery 
on LSD in my bedroom in college and so forth, it was much more kind of uh, an intersubjective cognitive dynamic experience. But it was only in the later years that I re re recognized the importance of the heart in that. And it seems to me that the heart connection um, with mystery is the thing that can most consistently afford being connected with that and and thereby having that flow but again i feel it's almost like uh it's like a very low level hum almost like you could like you could almost imagine people are walking around with different resonant frequencies that are emanating from their state of being and the one who is in that state of flow is like having like a slight kind of background hum of resonance is coming through and then there's like a spectrum of that and when you get to like Christ and the transfiguration it's like there's so much resonance that it's just like you know shining with light kind of thing and that is what the what the gospels are getting into when things are getting really interesting and strange but avoid a lot there I want to see where Joseph is with this and and pass it back to both of you Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure where I am because I was there is I wanted to pick up on what was coming up for me earlier was like flow as a, a the way it's modeled in cognitive science as a cascade of insights um and insight being this point of self-organizing criticality and I was I was thinking about music um how music has this sort of uh there's a there's a shape to it and uh you'll you'll reach this point of like cli a climax in the music um but but if we were to try and map that onto flow it would just be sort of like a a, a climax that's extended in time it, it, it like it's it's expanded um it's expanded in time um and and i think of okay what does that mean when you're listening to a piece of music what would that feel it's like you're you're always on the edge of like oh what's what's about to happen next there's like this this tension that's like always um always there it, it's keeping you right there at the edge um and so there's there's never a sense of like complete resolve or complete like um it, there's always like this this um it's always like towards towards the thing beyond um so that was what that was what was coming up for me when when Daniel was talking but there's a bunch of stuff um and maybe i'll i'll just leave it there because i uh yeah I really like I'll, that. I'll leave it um, there that was really good um a few things one i always find it very interesting how you have thinkers like plato and augustine who are like we find truth in memory like by remembering it as if there's something we've forgotten that we go back to 
like you were saying, remembering meaning, it feels like there's a conspiracy of nihilism almost that's kind of, you know, keeping people in this sort of dark place. And it's like, we forgot something. It's really strange though, because looking at Augustine, Plato, and also Berkson, I think, it's like memory is not merely a recalling of the past. That's what's strange. It's some sort of sense of an underlying mystery or pattern or something. You know, for Plato, it's math. He's really interested in geometry and all that. And it's like the forms, obviously. Um, and it's weird because it's like memory is how you gain it back. But we've been trying to think of memory as just recalling something you experienced. And what did you experience in the past of the mystery? Usually when you're a kid and you're, and usually what it, it's almost like what you naturally do is say there was something about childhood that was closer to the mystery. And yet the mystery is not reducible to childhood. That's what's so strange. And you're so, so what was it about the mode of being a child that made you more open to the mystery? That wasn't merely childhood though. It was more like the mode you had as a child, right? Maybe it was naivety. Maybe it wasn't anything. Maybe it was a distraction, but there's some sense that it's memory that brings it out. Like Augustine in the end of Confessions is like investigating memory. He ultimately concludes that the way we know God is through memory. Well, this is weird. Why is that? Um, there's something also about memory and imagination that are strongly linked together because both seem to be thoughts that are not bound by immediacy. And it seems as if we need to move beyond immediacy to encounter and regain the mystery. And what I mean by immediacy is right now, my immediacy is this laptop in this room, right? Well, if I'm remembering being a kid at a birthday party, I'm thinking about something that has nothing to do with my immediacy. Or if I'm thinking about being on, you know, in outer space, I'm thinking about something that has nothing to do with my immediacy. So both memory and imagination entail a kind of thinking that is not bound by immediacy, even if it is influenced by immediacy, because I'm still thinking in colors and shapes and so on and so forth, right? So there's something very mysterious there that seems worth um, considering. The other thing I was going to say on um, what you were getting at, Joe, that was really, really good, um, there's almost a way in which self-forgetfulness is when flow is integrated into everyday life. And likewise, love is the integration of the LSD experience into everyday life, right? But of course, one of the great risks is precisely because flow and LSD are so intense, you're just like, I'm just going to stay there. Because figuring out how to integrate this into love and figuring out how to integrate this into self-forgetfulness is really hard because then I have to deal with other people with different personalities who don't understand me. So I'd rather stay on the mountaintop. It's interesting when you go to the gospel, there's like Jesus and the transfiguration. And a lot of pastors um, will preach on the danger of the mountaintop. Actually, Oswald Chamber has a few sections in his devotional where he's like the dangers of the mountaintop experience, which is because the mountaintop is so great you just want to stay there and never come down. And, you know, Peter basically asked Jesus, should I, can we pitch a tent? I'd love to stay here because this is pretty neat. And Jesus is like, nah, we got, I got to go die. Um, and so one of the things that's so interesting, and this has also been a problem in say, um, religion, like if I just use Christianity as an example, the problem with mystical experiences is precisely that they're so great. Like, like, in like actually taking mystics and the church fathers and everyone be like, okay, yes, but we have to integrate it back into church life. You can't just go off into the mystical experience because then basically you end up isolated and alone and you never enter into love. But the mystical experience also is necessary because without it, religion becomes dead. Like if you never have the flow experience or you never have the like mystical experience where you see the full experience of the universe, rather be LSD or like mystical experience, then you don't ever have a sense of the mystery to try to integrate into the world. So you need to have those experiences, 
but then not stay in those experiences. And, you know, in, in Christianity, that's the temptation of the mountaintop, staying on the mountaintop and never bringing it down. Well, today it's like you have, it's almost like generally there are two, there's like two camps. There's people who don't believe in the mystery at all. That's kind of the scientism and all that, the nihilism and all that. But then you have people who have experiences of the mystery and just want to stay there. Like they just want to stay there. The, the tricky work is the integration, the bringing it into the world and figuring out what does it look like to live a life that integrates the LSD or the mystical into daily life, which is love. But, uh, but love, and then I'll pass if you want to, love is really hard because then you have to go through, oh, all the dysfunctions of human beings, Lacan, psychoanalysis, politics, economics, all this fun stuff. And that's really difficult. Like, what is it? What does it look like to form a socioeconomic system in terms of flow, in terms of mystery? What does it look like to have relationships and community in terms of that? Really, really complex and difficult. But I mean complex not in like a technical sense, but it's like a complex art form, like navigating the dance. Like, what does it look like to figure out the steps so that you're living and participating in the mystery even as you go to work? even as you're on a Zoom call, even as you're having dinner? What does it look like to always be participating in the memory of the mountaintop? And basically what it seems like, just to tie what I was saying, basically it's like Augustine and Plato, particularly are like all human beings, like the mountaintop experience seems to be part of human essence somehow. And we have to re recall it through memory or you have an LSD experience that then you have to remember in order to integrate it into your daily life now, but in that very act of remembering, there will be a temptation to escape to it. So you always have to flirt with the memory of, no, I know that life has meaning. No, I've seen experiences that are higher than this. No, I've had flow. So I know they're real, even as the entire culture is telling me it's not. And there's like a conspiracy of nihilism. I'm again, I'm going to remember what have I experienced. And even though it's really hard, figure out how to integrate this into daily life with other people in relationships, even though the entire culture acts like it's silly and you shouldn't do it. And so that's where the memory becomes a constant source of motivation to keep going. And as you're going in this, since the culture is against you, it's the rejection of Jesus now. Like there's a rejection, right? Where everyone's going to be like, that's crazy. You don't need to do it. What are you talking about? And you have to stick to that. Um, and to flow, flow in that. So that step of integration, even while you're rejected by the conspiracy of nihilism, as I'm using a catchphrase to describe it, and then dwelling in the memory of the mountaintop experience, not as a temptation, but a means to participate in it through daily life, seems to be part of what it means to have wisdom, to kind of figure out all of these different art forms and navigations. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful contributions from both of you just now. Um, see what can be woven together from them. Um, for myself, I think there's something really invaluable about this coming down from the mountaintop and into conformity with the world and all of its doubt and all of its rejection and all of its suckiness and all of its hardness. And, uh, that's, you know, been that pretty much feels like the leg of the journey that I'm on right now is like going straight towards the all of that shit. Um, and a couple of things, I mean, one is the capacity to 
again, suffuse daily life to find those little moments in the day to day, which saturates the day with meaning. And, and when you are somebody who's connected with that, then you become more connected with wholeness and thereby more readily open and available to little acts of weaving the fabric of life as you interact with it, aka you don't need to uh, convey to the woman in the coffee room about your LSD experience or the mystery of the universe. You just need to be loving toward them. And that seems to be uh, pretty religiously, uh, universally religiously viable way to participate in the world well. And this is uh, this is affirmed by religions, mystics, people who have had near-death experiences, gone to the other side, so forth and so on. Pretty much everybody says love uh relationship how kind were you to people was the most important way that you participated in this earthly realm now there's also what joseph was saying before by the way really really i could hear the music in it and there was a sense of the music it's because it's about the symphony of your entire life that your whole life becomes a symphony and that there are these movements in it and there are these grand climaxes, but then, you know, the music keeps going. And then the question for us becomes as philosophers, like what kind of symphony of life are you going to have? Um, how fully are you going to feel the heart-rending violin solo string piece that just goes on forever and ever and ever? because that makes beautiful music and the resolve that comes after that is all the more beautiful. So with that, there is this, this is where I want to bring in more of the actual Christianity stuff because Christianity is a, is, it has this dark romance. Some people outside of it, I think a lot of atheists probably perceive it as like almost sadistic when you've kind of had that complete deconstruction and you're outside of it, you look back in, you're like, man, I went to church as a kid and we as children all sat under this guy being crucified with this Roman torture instrument and all of these kind of bloody, dark imagery and icons and so on. And that seems to be um, an integral part of the resources that Christianity offers. It's kind of a martyrdom call, and it it the the depth of the relationship to the mystery is affirmed through those individuals like the pre-Christian Judaic prophets and post-Jesus Christian uh, prophets and so on, who ultimately go to die and get into all kinds of awful situations. Um, and somehow are able to retain connection to something more and connection to wholeness and a perspective on this earthly life, which is informed by, uh, I would say, a deep sense that there's something more than simply this earthly realm. And that's a transformative way of being. I was thinking about... Um mountaintop experiences I've had and asking the question when you're on the mountaintop asking the question how do I bring this down 
um, <clears throat> because the usual the the usual patterns um, by which I would bring something like that down um, are incredibly insufficient when you're up on the mountaintop. It's just I can't the idea of trying to sort of put this experience into a narrative and and uh, tell it from beginning to end as if that would somehow capture it. Um, you know, writing a blog post or something about this experience. It's just none of that is it's it's just like, no, that's not that's not what this is. Um, but there is a there is a way of being, there is a who I am on the mountaintop. It's that that's the thing that's always if I can if I can step into that, if I can bring that down with me, then other people will see what I saw on the mountaintop just by being in relationship to me. And that's it. That's all it is. That was perfect. Um, it's very interesting that arguably the best depictions of Jesus in literature is either one, Aslan and C.S. Lewis, who's not a human, and actually that dislocation actually helps it be a believable Jesus. But really, arguably, it's the um, Jesus in the Grand Inquisitor section of Dostoevsky. And the Grand Inquisitor goes through this whole reason why humans shouldn't be given free will. And it's a really compelling argument. He's like, that's why we're going to kill you against Jesus, because you gave man free will. And, free and man doesn't freaking want free will. It sucks. And all Jesus does is kiss him. Doesn't say a word. That seems to be a lot of it, where, in fact, it's the art of you that it goes to the mountaintop. And now you know the kind of art you need to be, but it has to be you. That's why we're talking about process, towardness of horizon, and embody of mystery. That seems to be primary. So fundamental is a, is a being, a becoming an art, which would li link up with the, would be, to be that would mean that you in yourself are engaging in this dance with the mystery that we are describing, right? So it seems, so step one, it seems to be, because now we're asking um, the critical, which I think is actually the really tough question, the integration of the mountaintop experience. I think we've put a lot of input, not, you know, I just speaking generally, there's kind of been a lot of, in my impression, people who have kind of suggested that we can deal with nihilism by giving people mountaintop experiences. Don't get me wrong. They are a necessary ingredient in the recipe. But the next step is how you finish the pie. Let's say you have a pie. You have all the recipe, all in perfect proportion. All the ingredients are there, but you don't put it in the oven. Then you have no pie. <laughs> it has to go in the oven and cook. The integration is the cooking phase. And that's what we have to think now. I think people like Viveki, I think there's a lot of people, I could go through a lot of different people have done the work of the recipe. Okay, like the ingredients that you need. And I don't even want to say Viveki isn't thinking. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying that the step, there's also a step of cooking it in the oven. And for Chris, let's, in Christianity, that seems to be the integration phase, the coming down from the mountaintop. Because to your music example, like the funny thing about a climax in music is if it's all climax, it's loud and doesn't make any sense. Like it has to build to the climax, then come down from the climax. And literally a mountain can only be a mountain if, the, if everything else is flat. 
You can't have a mountain if everything's at the same elevation, then it's just flatness at a higher elevation. So the mountain requires a different top topography, right? It requires a terrain. So likewise, for there to be mountaintop experiences, there has to be a terrain. Well, part of that terrain is going up the mountain and then coming down the mountain, right? And that's the integration. Now, what's very interesting, and then I'll pass it on this question of the kind of sadistic weirdness of Christianity, there's something in which if we view Paul as trying to think, what would it look like to integrate? One of the things we've really messed up in reading Paul is we don't really think about what he's doing. There's this weird, oh crap, how do I integrate the revelation of Jesus with the Torah in regard to problems that Jesus never spoke directly on? Okay, so there's this weird thinking the new while honoring the old in light of a creative possibility. That kind of, really, we should learn from Paul in epistemological method. Now, that's an entirely different subject, and that would be get into what I think we need to be talking about when we talk about Christian wisdom, of which is an honoring of a story while thinking the new and open to the unknown. That was a, that was a mouthful. Happy to unpack that, but I'll stay on what we're saying right here. Um, what's very interesting, one of the reasons we've gotten in trouble, say, with the cross, so the early church could have chosen to make their main symbol the tomb the empty tomb, right? And John Stout will talk about this, but they chose the cross. Why? Why would you choose the cross when you could have chosen the empty tomb, right? Shouldn't you have chosen the empty tomb? Well, because it's one giant F you to the Roman empire. Oh, the worst you can do is the cross. Guess what? That would honor us. Go on, do your worst. They've got the cross on. They're honoring the cross. They're like, literally, you cannot do the worst thing that you could because the crucifixion was considered the worst thing that anyone could could happen to you in the Roman Empire. Right. It was the worst form of death. And the Christians are like, you do that. It's a form of honor. So the cross, then the key to the cross is it is almost a kind of prodding of the Roman Empire. Like, bring it. Come on, bring it, bring it. Which means the cross is fundamentally a symbol of courage. The problem now is the cross is not necessarily a symbol of courage because it's become a mystical icon. So what has happened now is a lot of the symbolism of the church simply speaks to the narrative of the life of Jesus, which doesn't necessarily have the same meaning today. It would almost be more accurate if the Christian were to think of the thing they fear most and to wear that as their necklace. Like whatever you fear most is what you go to church under what you go to church to face. But you see, we don't really fear the cross anymore because as a mechanism of being tortured by the Roman Empire because it's a symbol of Jesus, right? So it doesn't have the same meaning. Now, I'm not saying every church should fall, throw out the cross as a symbol or different things, but if we're looking to the, like what the original Christians, that was a massive political statement and it was a massive statement of courage as well. And so the first thing I'll say is that the question of integration integrating the truth. It would seem to be the case that part of cooking the pie, as we mentioned, or integrating the mountaintop experience seems to have a lot to do with courage. There's a lot here with courage, fearlessness, facing fears, doing hard things, and things like that. And for the early church, that was so much of what the symbolism was getting at, facing fear. Because every single day, if you would go into these small churches, you knew that if the Roman Empire caught you, you were being crucified. 
basically no questions asked. You were going to be tortured or what? So then every single time you go to these little house churches or these meetings and you're being reminded of the cross, the other symbol was the fish, but you had a lot of reminder of the cross, you were facing that fear. You were thinking that fear. And it basically always posed a question to you. Do you actually believe this? Every time you saw the cross would have posed the question, are you serious about this? Are you really serious about this? The problem is Christian symbolism today no longer necessarily makes Christians ask themselves the question, am I serious about this? You know, what fears is this forcing me to face? And so that's part of a kind of mismatch that has occurred that leads to this impression that so much of it is just like Maccabon violent and what the heck are we doing, right? Because it's hard to have that symbolism be, in, be fit into a schema where it has a lot to do with courage. Um, also, it's saying that your life is not about climbing the political ranks. Your life is not about being the head of government. It's about, the, you know, actually the greatest honor would be dying on the cross, not being Caesar. Well, that's a massive shift in your value center. You know, that's a massive shift in what you're thinking. The least will be first. Well, the least die on a cross. They will be first. The first will be last. So those invert. So part of it, and then I'll pass it to who wants to speak. There's an entire logic of the original symbolism that we don't readily get today that therefore means we don't have the resources in our mind to think about integrating the mountaintop experience. It's actually very consequential because it's so much of it seems to have a lot to do with integrating the mountain experience, but the symbolism is not giving you the experiences to help you with that integration. There's a certain impoverishment that can occur or there could be different trouble. And what basically ends up happening is then it turns into dogmatism. It, be it becomes about believing the right things because your symbolism is telling you what you should believe, not that you should be facing your fears. Oh, well, if your symbolism was saying you should be facing your fear, then the religion couldn't really be a dogmatist because it's about doing, it couldn't just be dogmatism. It would have with it doing something, going out and facing something. You see what I'm saying? So it, all of that now doesn't have, unfortunately, the impact to send people out just like Jesus is to face their fears because the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'm just resting in the... That was a lot in there, Daniel. I really appreciate that. A lot of richness there. Joseph, is there anything that you are wishing to speak on at this moment? Hmm. Well, I just think that was excellent. Um, yeah, the, the, the point about what what you bring down from the mountaintop and and the courage that's involved in that um that that was like it really really hit something it really rang rang true in my own personal experience um <clears throat> And then all the ways in which I, you know, have fallen short of that and the, the frustration uh, that I've run up against in my own life in, you know, coming, coming down from the mountaintop and, and being confronted with just the chaos of, you know, ordinary life and, and um sort of clinging to that experience and then you know but, ah, but no this you know trying to 
somehow force it into to um it, it's a failure of i think the artistry that is required um to actually accomplish that to to actually accomplish that integration um it becomes kind of like this 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 brutish um um even even just telling someone about the experience I, th I think about that where it's like that's my first instinct where it doesn't require any sort of transformative process i can just be ordinary me and i'm i'm telling someone about this experience i had in which i i was you know that was a transformative experience but i'm not transformed in the telling of it and 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 so they don't it's not it there's a there's sort of this this disconnect and uh, frustration in that of like, mm, but they're not getting it because I'm not, I'm not, um, there, there's a, there's an artful. I love how you, I love how you put the, the, the art of who you are. It's a, it's an artful process. That's who you are. Um, and and, and like owning that fully and uh, stepping into that and um, developing that. Um, and that, and that, that is specifically frustrate in my experience, frustration is the alternative to that frustration leading to anger. And um, if, if you're not willing to sort of like, move with patience in that in that dance and um um so this is just all really this is all really good um like 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 personal points to to take home with me and and apply in my own life which is always the important thing in, the, in these discussions that can be you know very abstract it's like okay but what's the What's the what's the takeaway that I can actually apply here? No, I, I will just add to that. Thank you very much, Joe. I um like if 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 being a Christian is kind of like, how can I be be like the art of that person, Jesus, as opposed to how can I believe in that person, Jesus? Mm -hmm. Well, belief may mean that, but the problem is in our rationalist post-enlightenment world, that's not what belief means. Now, I right. would argue, actually, in the, in Judaism, belief does mean that it like but in, but in a lot of the West, it, it doesn't mean that. So where we don't think about belief as being an art. And, th and that's one of the, and the the reason why that's important is because being an art requires courage. Like mm -hmm. right there, you have to face your fears to do that. It doesn't take courage to believe the right things. In fact, it's getting rid of like there's no courage in that because you believe the right things. What are you afraid of? Like belief as believing the right premises has nothing to do with courage, actually. Now, there's a lot of people that say, oh, if you go in history and blah, 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 you have Galileo and they're getting good. Fine. If you're if you're introducing a new paradigm, sure. But um, you would introduce a new paradigm of belief equaled art. That is a kind of new paradigm in of itself. And there's rejection that comes with that in a post-enlightenment world, right? So the thing is, when we think about belief as an art of being, that gets far more aligned with courage and facing fears. And there's something inherently, if you go to the mountaintop, you're automatically strange. You're weird by definition, okay? Because you're, you're weird. 
So coming down must require courage. And if you don't realize, like, if you don't realize coming down from the mountain is going to make you weird, you're going to find out real quick. <laughs> and so, you're, you know, which is precisely what will tempt you to go back. Right. And so it requires the courage of that. In my opinion, the, you know, I'm talking about the symbolism of Christianity and the structure of it in different things. Because we don't fear the cross, we think the cross is simply about death. When for the early church, it's not primarily about death. It's about courage. You see, that's the problem. We're like, do you really think they're like, oh, we want to die? No, they say we're going to have the courage to spread the good news that we believe people need to hear to go to the mountaintop. And there's a high probability we will be killed if we do that, but they're not looking to be killed. That's the mistake. You know, the courage is primary of which could lead to death. So you have to not fear like death is a thing you have to not fear. Right. But courage is a massive, massive central point. And the problem is the symbolic resources of Christianity no longer bring with it an understanding that the opposite of faith is fear. Today, we believe the opposite of faith is doubt because we have a postmodern, we're a post-enlightenment society where we think faith is right belief. Therefore, the opposite of faith is doubt, whereas faith is courage. Faith is courageous action. And the opposite of that then is fear. Well, the symbolic structure of Christianity no longer necessarily gives you that, you see? And so you have to return the symbolic structure into its original meaning to get the primacy of courage. And the Bible is upset. Jesus is, Jesus is obsessed with be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid, which doesn't really make sense. It's kind of weird until you get this. Until you kind of go, oh, the very symbol, the very experience of an angel or a mountaintop or, or a vision that you can't really relate to other people easily, all to reintegrate that requires courage. So courage is primary. And then a lot of Christian wisdom, and I'll pass it to who wants to speak. Then a lot of Christian wisdom is figuring out the art of living courageously in relation with other people who don't necessarily get it. And what does that look like? Because the wisdom then is figuring out how to relate to those people in a manner that shows them the mountaintop, but doesn't make them oppressed by it. Because if I just come up to you and say, man, you got to like Jesus changed my life and you got to go to the mountaintop and see, now you feel oppressed and I'm selling you a product. That's not wisdom, right? And this then, um, to point ahead, this is where wisdom and beauty have a lot to do with one another. Because mm. wisdom is figuring out how to be beautiful to attract people into the story that simultaneously makes them open to it so they can become the art of the dance that you are living in yourself because of the mountaintop experience that you are now trying to integrate that can only be expressed to other those in the form of a kiss like Jesus and the Grand Inquisitor mm. or a smile. Now, hallelujah. I'm going to need a fire extinguisher because I see them little flames popping out from the top of your head right now. Um, <laughs> right. So much in there again. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was hoping would come through this dialogue and through subsequent dialogues is this question of what might a new Christianity look like? And when I say that, I don't mean 
what's been meant by that question by iteration after iteration after iteration of Christian churches forever. But even just going back to my parents, like this was the whole thing. It was like the church was like this, but now we're going to do this. And it's new Christianity, but it's more or less inside of the same paradigm. That's not quite what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what is a Christianity that can really get outside of itself where to be Christian might indeed mean to be going deep into Buddhism, deep into rhizomatic mycelial philosophies of the earth, mother nature, um, being impacted by the psychedelic Renaissance, being impacted by cognitive science, being a flourishing of a thousand different schools which, you know, each person is the integration and weaving of all of the threads that are interesting to them. So it's not like sign up to this club and we'll all go and study the same thing. That's not going to make it interesting. What makes it interesting is that we three become the meeting point of a diversity of threads coming from different areas. All right. So this matter of the apple pie we and what what i'm loving about this also is this this is so different to the conversations about christianity that i've encountered and the the vibe and sensibility of it cuz basically this is this is like this is the best guide to a young young man contending with the world kind of conversation for me it's like these are real problems how do we live courageously? How do we find meaning? How do we live beautifully? How do we do that in a way that isn't actually a homogenizing um, force where we're all doing the same thing, but actually each person's art is absolutely unique. So I love this image from uh, Karamazov of Jesus going and giving the kiss. And what I heard in the way you conveyed that story is that it's not about each of us going to our captor and giving him a kiss. It's that the courageous art of each moment for each person in each particular context can be absolutely unique to that context. In one moment, it might be forceful. It might be channeled anger. In another, it might be profound gentleness. In another, it might be flamboyance. You know, it could be uh, dwelling in silence. It could be any number of different things. The key being that it is somehow the courageous, unique expression of what's flowing through you in that moment. And that also requires you to be somehow listening or attuned to what is that flow point? What is that inspiration point? What is that um, novel voice or actionable direction that leads me? And that's something to do with faith. And this matter of courage, I mean, just to bring in the etymology, courage, courage, core is hot. So we're coming back to the heart again from the beginning. There is no courage without the heart. And, and the heart is somehow the thing that is confronting fear. And to me, it seems that it's the growth of the heart that that is pushing outwards, that is becoming the thing that can then go and and contend and face up to the uh the conflict and rejection and uh 
vicissitudes of life and aloneness and and all of it um and again this is this is uh this is life life wisdom rather than particularly being about christian wisdom oh and gosh the one thing i didn't touch on but uh and perhaps i won't at this moment but i think you know my my journey into the symbol of the cross and and finding so much power in it does definitely testify to you know it's the the terrific resource of the cross is 100% still there uh, i'm not in a position to convey quite how it is i've found it or in, in such a way that another person might do the same thing but i believe that the this the the the, the essential transformative power in the cross in christ's crucifixion remains available in reality for anybody who is suffering the most terrific suffering of their life there it is available and there it's a transformative uh symbol no i I, i'll just comment on that you know um it's very important like when we talk about it's always interesting when we talk about death right there's a literal physical death and then there's the death of the ego death of your social standings death of your expectations and different things like that certainly a lot of what we'll see in the new testament or different things when it talks about death is dealing with like a lot of those kinds of deaths, deaths of ego, deaths of expectations, deaths of notions that you know how the world should work and different things like that, right? And so then, but all of that, the reason why that's important to note is because all of that takes courage. All of that is really hard, right? Those kind of deaths of the ego and those expectations, then you see where courage and facing your fears and stuff like that come into play. Also, What you see in the Grand Inquisitor section and also with Pontius Pilate is Jesus doesn't explain himself. Boy, it sucks not to explain yourself. Like it requires a kind of courage not to explain yourself, right? If you have a mountaintop experience, the more high resolution per se the experience, the higher the likelihood you can't explain it. And that's part of the problem, right? That's why you don't like going to the mountains and stuff is like, I don't want to try to reintegrate it because it's almost by definition cannot be explained right? Unless you do it. And so when the grand inquisitor is like, Jesus, why'd you give us free will? Well, Jesus is like, there's a reason, but you couldn't get it unless you were me. Like, unless you've been through the experience of creation and you've seen everything that could be the case and you knew what freedom made possible, like, unless you were me and had that view, you couldn't get it. So all he can do is kiss, Um, which certainly is not saying it's okay to accept um, captures and different things. And it's also really important like we always have to remember there are times when Jesus gets angry, where Jesus is against things like love does not equal passivity. There's something deeper going on with love and love has something I think a lot to do with righteousness, which has a lot to do with courage. The other thing that's critical with this, why love seems to have um, to also be part of the courage of the mountaintop experience is because to love someone requires a certain vulnerability and a certain courage. Like if you like marry someone, Um, and that person gets killed or gets kidnapped or whatever, your life could be totally wrecked, right? Like if you're truly committed to someone or you're really invested in a community, then if something happens to them, that can happen to you, right? And likewise, if you really, really invest in someone and then they turn around and they're like, I hate Chris, I hate your beliefs. They're really dumb. Why do you do it? 
that's a really hard thing, right? So there's a courage in love. And this is, I think, what we have to understand. Like a lot of love now, just the word love in modern culture basically means simply being nice. Like you're nice, right? And don't get me wrong. I like people who are nice. I don't really like people who throw stuff at me. Um, so there's something about niceness. But love requires, like true love, if you grant me that phrase, has something to do with vulnerability and therefore courage. And so when we start saying, oh, there's something about love that is the integration of the mountaintop experience and coming down from the mountaintop requires courage because the intensity of the experience by definition cannot be explained, well, you start seeing how love has something to do with the mountaintop. And also too, when you marry someone and somebody asks, why did you marry that person and not someone else? That's another thing you can't really explain. You'd have to really get it. Like why you love a particular person and their radical particularity, just the way they are, is hard to explain. You say, well, because they're friendly and sweet. And no, that's not, it's not that. It's some emergent whole that cannot be captured, right? So you see the act of love having something to do with the mountaintop experience as well. So there's these parallels that suggest integration. Now, um, the next topic you brought up is extremely important. I'll pass it to who wants to speak before so. But this question of what does it look like to do Christianity today that is taking seriously LSD, Buddhism, all of these different things. The, the first thing I will say is, one, you have to get back to that emphasis on courage. That seems to be really important. We have to think about it as an integration of a mountaintop, not just believing the right things. And the, and the last thing I'll say um, before passing it, because this is really important, we should not, we have to look at, like, if we look at Paul, Paul is using Greek philosophy. He is using outside sources from the Torah to do his Christian reasoning, per se. Like to think like a Christian, he is not just using the Torah. He is using his training in many experiences. And in Corinth, he goes up to this unknown rock and he's like, hey, you pagan, you see this unknown rock you were worshiping? You didn't even know it, but you're actually worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping the God of the Jews without even knowing it. So it's a, it's a very important topic. And I'll just pass it for now. There is a precedent. The point I'm making is there's a precedent for thinking outside into a broader tradition in Paul if you can recognize the influence of outsourced streams from Judaism. Because for Paul, you would basically only be using Judaism if you were silent, right? Because he is a Jew. Um, for us, he's not. He's using all sorts of thoughts from all sorts of different areas. So we see a press, a, a press I cannot say this word, a pretense per se, for even approaching this question and considering it Christian to even approach this question, because you see it in Paul. Um, so I, you know, that's, that would be the first thing I say. I've had this nagging question as, as you guys are talking that the relationship between courage and trust, um, because I think, I think the way that I've been framing for myself, um, kind of the, the kind of this question of you know integrating from the mountaintop is do i trust this person enough for you know to 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 take that sort of um step of courage or something like that and um <clears throat> and so i'm 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 curious about that that relationship and how those two interact um because it's 
you know, what, where, if you get stuck in a situation where the answer to that question is no, and, um, you know, and maybe it's, it's like, it's, it's no for most people. It's like, no, I don't trust this person. I don't, uh, you know, I don't trust anybody with this, um, like the, 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 the being weird, when you come down from the mountaintop, you're weird. And, um, you know, you risk, you risk sort of social alienation, whatever, um, in being weird. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking to integrate these two sort of frames of, from the, from the perspective of courage, like, yes, it takes courage, but, but also, um, the, the question of trust, the question of trust of the world of the other person. Yeah, just perhaps one little thing for me is definitely the weirdness. I feel like I'm a complete weirdo. And, uh, and the degree to which that has been uh, expressed and realized, I would say, is very um nascent and so for me the this question of being weird and getting socially rejected we might substitute being weird with being yourself um being yourself is that thing and what that is is profoundly particular and there's something about particularity that is god-given or divine um and a liberation and an invitation for others. So the the courage is connected with a service, being of service by being yourself, you're being of service to the possibility of others. When we see others being themselves in all of their particularity, um, like when I watch OG Rose and I see Daniel and Michelle doing all of their thing, I'm inspired to, you know, do the same. And that does not mean doing the same as what they're doing because it's going to be a different thing. And I don't know precisely what it's going to be. What's what it's going to be is going to be the thing that emerges when I get into that proximal zone of courage, almost like that flow insight zone, but the courage zone of like, uh, you know, we've talked about this in Dialogos, like getting to that place where you don't know what you're going to say next and you're speaking from it and and not only speaking from it, but like expressing the emotion or giving life to a particular aspect of self. That is that, that kind of extends outward into other areas of life. Um, and for me, I don't think I actually included this before, but I wanted to say the about this cooking of the pie. Nobody can... Uh, Nobody can be cooked for you is something I want to say. Like you can, you have all the ingredients. Nobody can go through the process of being cooked on your behalf. And so there is a profound solitariness, loneliness, individual journey to that. Um, no matter how uh, supported you are, nobody can be cooked with you and this is another area in which christianity jesus becomes a profound resource because you have these amazing um 
narratives and stories and worlds in which Jesus is going out on his own, not only being rejected, but going out on his own and being on his own and being misunderstood. And yet still in the midst of that, he's pursuant of something. And what he's pursuant of is that connection with the father, with God. And there's something about him doing that, that deepens his faith and leads to the courage when he comes back to town or indeed when he turns his head towards Jerusalem um, and it, I, I was reading that in one of the accounts of the transfiguration, it said that he, when Jesus is on the mountaintop and he's talking with prophet Elijah and prophet, um, Moses, I think it is, uh, you know, what they talk about is his pending exodus from Jerusalem. So it's not just, he's in the illumination, like he's getting informed in the midst of it. Like this is what's coming up for you um it's not going to be um pretty and so that is a, a toughening um <laughs> toughening possibility and uh, yeah i don't have a wrap on this thread so i'm just going to leave it there i think i'm going to leave it there well that well that's all magnificent um it is very interesting. It's to a point earlier of Joseph, where there's something about the mountaintop that also brings a sense of organization, like in priorities, like people have a near death experience and they're like, I need to stop this. I need to do this. I need to prioritize and love. So it's very interesting that these, um, that these mountaintop experiences are not like an experience. That's like a closed thing that, that, that then doesn't afterwards impact you. You have something and it has an organization principle as well like it helps you prioritize and figure out what you want to do and that seems to be really important so if you have a society where people don't have those experiences it's not by chance that they don't know what to do with their lives like what's the problem today everyone's like i don't know what to do with my life i don't know what to do with my life yeah why should, if all you have is the horizontal plane per se every other possibility looks just as good as every other possibility right so how do you choose one everyone ends up the Berkey and uh, donkey story you know, that's a donkey that's between two. Um, so you have a donkey and it's between two evenly um, sized piles of grain. And the donkey has to decide which grain it's going to eat. And the donkey starves to death because it can't make a rational choice because the two piles of grain are equal, right? So it can't make a choice, right? I actually think that it's uh, the Barkian um, donkey or whatever, B-O-N-K-I-A-N, I think. I think that thought experiment actually can go a whole long way to explain a lot of people's nihilisms and uncertainty because no choice presents itself as necessarily better than any other, so they get paralyzed. And then if they choose one, they're like, maybe I'm missing out on something else and you're always unsure and then you go, you know, you're unhappy basically. Well, if you have a mountaintop experience that helps you prioritize it, that feels vertical, and not just horizontal, but there's a vertical dimension. And from the vertical, it's like that one, that one, and that one is what you should choose. Then if you organize your life according to those things, it doesn't feel arbitrary. And it doesn't feel as if you're now stuck just choosing between possibilities that are all equally weighty in terms of just raw rationality, which would then mean, mean you're stuck. So the vertical has a big impact on organizing your action in the same way that if you know of the possibility of a climax in music or a really powerful scene in a movie, you know that you need to organize the story or the music 
to make possible that climax, right? You know what you have to do. Like you can't just introduce like a powerful twist in a story out of the gate. You have to organize the story, make the characters believable, have people that you know what you have to do to create that effect, right? So if you have a knowledge of the climax, you have a knowledge of the flow, you have a knowledge of the LCD, you have a knowledge of the mountaintop, that brings with it an organizational principle that can help you from ending up like that Bojian donkey that we're talking about, where you're stuck in your rationality. So it's a very, very big deal. Now, a few more things. It's very, um, basically it would seem as if inspiration, we need to be inspired into self-forgetfulness, basically, uh, inspired into the mystery. And it would seem like when you're talking about this feeling of inspiration, basically like people encounter the person of Jesus and then they're inspired to be, here's the key term, like Jesus, in their own life. Like is really important. It's not equivalent to Jesus. It's like Jesus, meaning that Jesus discloses some kind of pattern that you have to figure out what that looks like in your own life. But that requires active thinking. And I would say wisdom, and this would actually kind of tie to Plato, is a lot in Aristotle in the, the ethics, would be the discerning of that pattern in your own particular life. Like you were kindly talking about the inspiration from OG Rose. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And like you say, you have to then take that inspiration as a call to figure out what that looks like in your own life. That particularizes you, right? Well, that's Christian thinking. That's thinking like Jesus. Like, okay, I believe. So basically, like, I believe that somehow if you become your true self, and this is very important because being like Jesus makes you more of a particular individual who is not like anyone else. You know, at the end of Revelation, it talks about everyone has a, a right, a rock that has their name up on the bottom of it that only they know with God. So everyone, the closer you come to God, the more you become one of one. You, it's not like a blob where everyone becomes the same. Heaven is a place of radical particularness. So the notion is that if you are like Jesus in your own life, that will actually make you more particular. But here's the problem. The more particular you are, the more you can only be known directly. People can't bring their ideas of you to you. And that's why you become weird. It's a function of particularity. You know how we're saying you become more weird? You become, you can't really be understood. That's because the more particular you are, by definition, that requires direct experience. Like if I'm trying to describe a rock, I can do it generally. But if I'm trying to describe this rock, that's going to be a very different ball game, right? You actually have to come and see the rock and be here and experience the rock, right? That's what ends up happening. The more like Jesus you are, the more you are particularized, ergo mountain experiences that particularize you. And because you are particularized, it's not that you're not knowable, it's that you can only be known in the particularity, oh, wait a minute, that's a love relationship. Because love is when you're open to the particularity of the other. So by definition, mountaintop experiences require relationships to become love relationships. You see what happens because the mountaintop particularizes you and it particularizes other people who have mountaintop experiences. So then the only relationship possible with such a person that is a disclosing of that essence must be a love relationship. 
relationship. Can't be a associate relationship or a stranger relationship or a general relationship. It has to be particular. The reason why it has to be love, because what is love? Openness. You are open to receiving the other as opposed to imposing on the other. Well, if they are particular and are only known in their particularity by themselves, then the only way to know that is to be open to them, right? And to let that come forth, right? And so love relationships are the only relationships of which are fitting when dealing with mountaintops, you see? So that's why flow and love, all these things go together. Why love has a lot to do with the integration of the mountaintop. And that of course requires courage because if you're open to the other, your defenses are down. Your defenses are down. And so who knows what will occur? Now, the last thing I'll say on the extremely important topic of trust that Joe brought up, and I really appreciate him bringing that up. Um, if I have written like a long essay on David Hume, okay? And I give it to say um, a guy at work. Is that trusting or is it kind of cruel, right? If you think about it, he doesn't, he's not interested in philosophy. He's, he's not interested in all. And I just throw it, it's like, hey man, I've worked on this essay. I'd love you to read it. There's a way in which I'm trusting him, but it's also not really fair. It's kind of like unjust, right? Because I'm putting something on him that he has to fail at right? Like he, he doesn't know David Hume. I'm using these Latin terms. What the heck? I'm, I'm def by definition, I'm going to kind of frustrate him, right? It's not going to work. I think when we come to the question of trust, it really helps it to think about it in the creative and artistic realm. It, you, over the years, if you ever do an artistic practice, you come to learn that you can't just tell everyone about it. You can't just give it to other people because they don't have enough of an openness or a connection. They'll in fact kind of blow up on you. Now you can say, well, it's their fault for not being open to it. But at the same time, you weren't very wise. You kind of, you kind of expected them to be on board with your stuff without doing any training to bring it up. And there's kind of a cruelty in this, right? Um, when Jesus, Jesus will very often be like, hey, don't tell them what I told you. Come away with me. We're going to go off privately. Is that Jesus not trusting everyone else in the Jewish communities? Is that Jesus failing to extend trust to the rest of the human, human race? Or is there a wisdom there where Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to extend this to these people because it would actually be cruel because they're not in the place to receive it. And in fact, it could maybe be bad. The best example of this is how we can understand God's hiddenness. Why is God hidden? Dante is very good. If God's not hidden, you're dead because he is so magnificent and glorious that if he were to fully unveil himself without being hidden by the cloud in Dante, then you would be destroyed. Does that mean God doesn't trust us? That's not the correct language. It's literally, we have to rise ourselves up to be able to handle more and more of God's glory forever and so forth. And then as we're able to handle it, he will disclose more of himself, right? It's not that God is hidden forever, He's like a cloud. He's like the sun. And there's a cloud that gradually moves away as you become more like the pattern we are describing to handle more of it. It's not a trust matter. It's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of knowing that too much too soon destroys people. And so what ends up happening, what we part of Christian wisdom is discerning 
who to extend what to in love, love relationships so that it doesn't destroy them or overwhelm them or make them pathological, but actually enhances them. And so what we have to do is like, as we like walk and become like Jesus, you have to become discerning about which people are able to receive your certain level um, or where you are so that it is something that benefits everyone and thus makes the dance. You know, if you're trying to dance and the lights are too bright or the music is too loud, the dance kind of sucks, right? All the conditions have to be right. That's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of creating the conditions, but then also believing if the conditions are right, something can occur, something can emerge, the dance can happen. And trusting if those conditions are right, then it could occur. The trust is in the possibility of the conditions. If you discern what those conditions are and rightly attune yourself to them. But this is also, and then I'll pass it to who wants to speak. This is why Christianity also talks about a body where everybody has different roles at different times to do different things. Because although this sounds like, oh, are you saying that like some people are just to be left behind? No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is using other people to do other things in other places based on what those people are supposed to do. And they are all attuned accordingly. There, it is a concert of different parts and different instruments doing different things. And if you try to make people who are supposed to be the flutists be the violinists, because you're like, hey, here's a violin, I want you to play it. You're setting them up to fail because they don't know how to play the violin. But if they threw the flute at you, you would suck at that, right? You know, maybe we're really, you know, there. I'm not that great at organizing a giant logistical operation, but I do know people who are very good at that and they make massive differences in homes and impoverished communities and different things like that. But coordinating that all of that logistical reality, getting the trucks to be on time, all of that. I'm not that good at that. If I tried to do that, I would actually harm all of the people who could have benefited from that effort because I won't do it well. Whereas someone else could do it well and thus it would be loving to let that person do it instead of me. So what happens is a question of fittingness. What is fitting? What is appropriate? And all of that comes to wisdom. And then where trust comes in is trusting if you find what is fitting, then the spirit can move. Then what's supposed to emerge can emerge. So the trust is in the possibility of the fittingness and to position yourself accordingly. Wow, that was beautiful. Um, this is so good. I, I just the the reframing. This is a, yeah. It was a, it was exactly the sort of thing I was I was trying to like okay, there's something here that's not coming together for me and, and you help this come together, reframing it in terms of, reframing trust in terms of the dance. And it sort of takes this, um, it, 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 it takes away these sort of walls between things and between people. And it's one continuous interconnected process. That's one thing, but it also, it also takes like this element of fear that's involved is like, do I trust this person or not? And it sort of just like, says like, no, that's, we're going to reframe this whole thing. That's not how we're looking at this. We're looking at this in terms of um, uh, fittedness. I, I love that. Like are, are things fit, fit for, is this, is this, if I were to, if I were to um, approach someone in a certain way or or tell them about a certain experience would that be fitting for this moment and for this person um in their particularity that's um and, and then it, and again it's like 
it, it's it reframes it away from fear and towards wisdom, but also towards beauty. And like you said before, the beauty, the be wisdom having to do with beauty um, in the in this way of um, of of belonging and fittedness. That's that's the is it fitting? Um, I think that's the, really the crucial question of like, yeah, I think if if I were to reframe reframe the question of do I trust this person with you know X, it's the it's the reframing of that question to is this fitting for this moment with this person to express X, whatever it is. So that's and that's um yeah i'm gonna i i mean that's 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 super helpful super helpful oh and, and i'll just add like the other part of it is how it connects for me with humility like if i go into work and they're talking about the football game it is not fitting for me to like ignore them or to switch the topic to philosophy in fact what would be fitting for me is that i would do this i'd definitely do this with the whole side i'd learn all the games i'd learn what was going on so that when i was there i could participate in what to them was community now there was a part of me also as a you know in believing that these higher things are important to if they ask me about higher things to be there to talk about higher things and i don't mean higher in a hierarchy i don't mean it that by higher i just mean vertical if you will um and if you don't have the horizontal you don't have vertical the way i put it without the horizontal you don't have distance if you just have the vertical you just have you don't go anywhere but if you have distance without the vertical then it's shallow Right. So you have to have the horizontal and the vertical. Right. You have the vertical without the horizontal. You're not going anywhere. You're deep, but you're not going anywhere. But if you have the horizontal without the vertical, you're shot. Yeah, you go a great distance, but you're shallow. So you got to have both. But the thing is, if I wasn't there, if I tried to force what I think mattered on these people, then there probably would not be enough of a community for even the possibility of asking about the vertical, right? Because they'd be like, that guy's a dick. <laughs> you know, that guy's not very nice. And so the other thing is when you think of fittedness, you go into situations and say, what is also fitting for me to do in this situation? And that's where you get the humility. And also it turns out, wait a minute, there is a lot of good that comes out of sports. Huh, there's a lot of good that can come out of these things that I don't think. And then you start learning and you start appreciating some of these things that you may have otherwise not been open to. And obviously I did wrestling and long distance training, but they saw, you know, I think sports. But the point is like the fittingness also works on you to meet people. And that's where it gets tied to humility. But of course, humility is, requires courage as well in different ways and being willing to meet people in those places. So for me, it works both ways as well. I just wanted to note that. Yeah, so much here. And I'm um, <clears throat> really enjoying this conversation. And also just a, a time now as we kind of approach the, the top of the hour to to gently draw things to a close, but there's so much I want to include before then. And I'm sure you guys have more to include as well. Um, it feels like we're really distilling some essential qualities of the neo-Christian um, philosophical community, basically here. Um, first at the individual level in this question of trust. Um, for me, I think it's really important to connect the question of trust in people trust in God together and and a big problem comes when those two things are separated and I think this is just a general insight into 
um, relationship that I've been having and, and even things like the institution of marriage, like thinking of it not um, as just two people in a dyad, but as a triad and that that's the proper way of holding it. Um, and that might actually be somehow the key to resolving the very widespread relationship issues and the profound amount of pressure that is put on our individual romantic loves um, and attachments. And it's so painful and difficult. And part of the reason for that is, well, lack of community, but perhaps more importantly than that, the lack of relationship to God as a mediating factor. Because if there isn't a trust in God, love of God there, then when the dyad breaks down, it's a horror show. Because you've lost connection with source in a profound way. You've lost connection with yourself in the most profound way possible. Um, you're in a barren, barren landscape in that situation. Um and perhaps you have to be, and this is also part of the darkness of Christianity, is like you have to go through the um, the crucifixion or what have you in order to find God at the bottom of the hole um, rather than finding him in the meadow or in the plain. So this matter of trusting God seems important to the trust in relationships, but that that trust is something that is practiced as relationship trust is also practiced. It's not something that just uh, is established in a contract at the outset. It's a back and forth. And the more of that back and forth that's going on between you and that other person, then the more possibility of trust. And this brings me to another thing, reciprocity. This is one of the qualities of the, of the community is reciprocity. And this is where um trust in god kind of maps down into trust in other people because you take you you have the courage that comes from relationship with with god and with the mystery that leads you to kind of go to that edge point and then you're met by other people there and that might be other philosophical people or what have you it might be people in this kind of community that participate in but it's also about life itself it's about the experience of like if i take the push if i um extend some kindness to this passing stranger they reciprocate or something like that or i'm in a pickle and i ask somebody this kind of thing it's a relationship the world that occurs um and that that's another kind of trust that can be cultivated um and I, I do think that one of the mysterious and interesting qualities that comes when the mountaintop is being integrated and there's more trust in God is, you know, people talk about more synchronicities, but really like um, people meeting you in a different way, even without you extending anything, simply by you have, having a little bit more suffusement like i can see this shift day by day like if i'm disconnected from myself or i'm really feeling suffused and and light things will happen doors will open people will greet me what have you and that um that's that you know makes life more of a garden 
and finally just to extend you know this oh and that's also about oh goodness uh that's socrates in the coffee shop right <laughs> um socrates in the coffee shop or whatever it is like fittedness to the situation um not being like uh autistic basically in in the sharing of revelation <laughs> being being wise and fitted and the question of okay so there's reciprocity practice trust but you're the pie and you're getting cooked uh another metaphor for me feels very often recently that i'm like the baby in the birth canal that's getting squeezed through the birth canal um we need to have midwives and death doulas who facilitate and engage in the process with us and we can't just be like oh i need to go on google and find one and hire one it's not really that kind of thing but as a matter of trust and and seeking it out and step-by-step -step reciprocity of of forming relationships but i think these particular kinds of relationships of people who can meet you in the midst of uh your death you're dying and being reborn and dying and being reborn uh that's essential to making that passage tolerable and it's also one of the gifts and qualities of reality i would observe that that is the case um even when you know you can be very i've been very socially disconnected in a normative sense over the last six months i've been disrupted moved different environments moved somewhere where i don't really know anybody but i've had that handful of midwives and death doulas around intermittently and and the quality we could have a whole conversation about the qualities that a midwife or death doula provides to you but those kinds of qualities of witnessing and engaging with you um that feels like a really important thing that we um open ourselves for and and listen for and also become for others as well i i really i've been trying to relate to this um what you're saying about trust in God. Um, and it, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost wondering how that, um, how it differs from sort of trust in the music that in, in the dance that's, that's happening. Um, that's, that's kind of how I, it's kind of how I relate to it a little bit, but, um, because there's there's times where it's like you kind of you have this moment of of fear uh not not doubt but fear and i like that distinction that daniel made earlier the the opposite of faith is is fear rather than doubt um the, the faith faith in the dance um that's sort of you're you're committed to it and there's a there's a trust and a commitment to it and 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 so you're participating in it with that trust and commitment and then that moment of fear is oh there's something wrong with the dance itself it, it, itself and i i need to i need to somehow you know change change the dance or i need to 
um, you know, pick up and move to another, you know, you know, like another part of the song or something like that, um, or, or change the song. And, um, and, and then, and in that moment, it's like, okay, but what if I stop and ask the question, how much do I trust the music right now? It's, 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 um, there's a humility in that because it's a, it's a surrendering my own expectation of what the music should be in this moment um, to, okay, what's, what's really happening? How do I actually conform myself, um, you know, conform to like fit myself to, to the music and, and to the dance. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, I'm wondering how, how the trust in God relates to trust in the dance and what's what's the difference what's the difference between god and, and the dance well that was magnificent yeah and uh jacob i've enjoyed these conversations very much thank you for hosting them in the time it, it's really been really wonderful um so apparently dance can be medicine where if you go and you kind of dance regularly or you do it, it can help you feel better. You can have relationships in community. And apparently also relationships are really good for health as it is really good for health to have like a mental project and different things. Like the worst thing you can do for your health is uh, to sit around isolated at home, watching TV, not doing anything. In fact, you could have a terrible diet, like eat really bad food, but literally just going out and seeing people and having friends and like regular like outings, you're probably going to live longer than someone who like does exercise every day. Pretty crazy, right? Uh, and dance is apparently great medicine, where when you go out and, and you dance, it's really good for you. And health-wise, obviously, it's physically fit, but it also has an emotional element. You're learning the skill. Like, overall, there's something about dance that seems really, really good for health. It's pretty interesting. Um, and uh, so kind of dance can be a certain medicine. And it, and it basically seems to be like that um, mystery is the medicine of reality, where if reality does not have mystery, it's sick. And likewise, human beings without mystery seem to be sick as well. And mm -hmm. basically what it seems to be the case is that everything that composes this life, you have to hurl at mystery so that it can come back healed. If you have your reasoning and you don't hurl it toward mystery, you just put it toward facts and it becomes sick and it turns into a force of nihilism. But if you take your reasoning and you throw it toward mystery, it comes back to you healed. Likewise, if you have your relationships, like in marriage and different things, and you just have it between the two people, it tends to become pathological and problematic. But if you take that relationship and throw it into mystery, it tends to come back healed. Because it would seem as if God in the dance is the third thing that everything in reality needs to be healed. And without that, it cannot be healed. And things have to be toward that so they can cease to be sick and that they can be healed. It, I don't think it's by chance that Jesus seems to be very concerned with healing and miracles that heal. The blind can see, the bleeding stops and things like that. But of course, you have to trust that the dance is medicine. You know, if I tell you dance is medicine, you can say, that's silly. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, I can say mystery is what is the medicine for reality. And you can say, that's silly. No, it's not. You have to take your relationship or you have to take your time and go to the dance place and do the dancing. You have to take your relationships and your reason and throw it toward reasoning. And the act of throwing it toward reason, I mean, to throw it toward mystery, what if it doesn't come back? What if you're crazy? What if you take your reasoning and you believe a lot of like superstition and it's really crazy, right? Like there's a massive risk in taking your life and throwing it toward mystery and thinking that it will come back healed. But it would seem to be the case that this is fitting. 
that it is fitting for human beings to take their life and throw it toward mystery, and that it is fitting for things to be healed. But the only way that they can be so healed is if we trust in that mystery and we make ourselves vulnerable to it and we're open to it and we give it our mar marriages, we give it our relationships and we give it our people. So when you marry someone, you go, I believe we're fitted for a mystery. I believe you are too. You want to go? I think all dating basically needs to be a kind of adventure. I think all marriage needs to be a kind of adventure. I think all of life is best as a kind of adventure because it is quite a bit of adventure to climb a mountain, quite a bit of adventure to come down from the mountain. And it's quite a bit of adventure to figure, to believe that you could integrate that mountaintop experience with the rest of life. And it's quite an adventure to step on a dance floor if you've never danced before, or you're not sure how to do it. It's quite risky, but you trust that if you do it, the people around you will not mock you. And in fact, they might be inspired by you to dance as well. And so in that, there's the possibility of stepping into a way of life that believes that God is fitted for reality and reality is fitted for God. And in that becomes the possibility of healing the world. Because at the end of the day, we're all very, very sick. But Jesus came to heal the sick. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And that means he came for all of us. But it takes the courage to receive the medicine, to put ourselves in the place where that medicine can be something that we receive. And that requires courage. That was beautiful. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Really Joe. appreciated. Um, well, both of you, but just um, yeah, this conversation, like it's conversations like these that are um, more than really anything else, like um, in my life right now, like it just deeply enriching and, um, and, and it, it, it helps me, helps me get a, um, what's, what's the way to put it? It helps me get a grip on, on things. It, it elevates me. It helps, um, helps me better conform to the, to the dance. And, um, and, and, and so it's just like, a am just appreciating that. And I, and, I, and, and in light of that, I, I hope to do more of these and more regularly. And it's funny thinking about like this morning, um, prior to this conversation, um, like I was, I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't know that I'm in the right, like, you know, I'm in the right mood for this right now. It's like, I'm, you know, got other stuff going on and, um, you, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not in the right state for, for this. And, um, but again, it's like, well, how much, how much do you trust the, the movement of, of things? And, um, and, and, uh, you know, and so I, I'm, I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I, you know, uh, pushed, pushed through that and, and, uh, participated in this conversation, um, despite of that. So, um, thank you, gentlemen. I'm glad you did as well, Joe. I, I love these conversations. It's a truly a joy. So always a pleasure. I'm very glad. Likewise, very glad to be in the dance with both of you today. Absolute pleasure. I was also having a crazy afternoon too so uh 
putting trust in the in the dialogue and the dialogos and uh just absolutely exquisite i'm really excited to share this with christian folk and non-christian folk alike and you know it it feels like a conversation that's not happening anywhere except at this particular moment in time with you guys uh you know as we journey into the edge of the of the mystery of it so amen hallelujah looking forward to continuing the series and uh seeing where it goes thank you both thank you both it was a pleasure